0: They do a little deal, and everybody loves to watch them and everything, and uh, it's great. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Last week uh, we were off because uh, Jim was here, and we had him preach, and he did a great job. And uh, uh, Jim's a very good preacher, and uh, just really enjoyed sitting back and listening to him and what he gave everybody. But uh, today, I want to uh, get back into 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We know now that from chapter to chapter, we've been dealing with the wisdom of the minister. And uh, in this chapter, we see uh, the attack on, on God's church. Now, last week, I gave you an intro, or last time we were together. I gave you an intro to this great chapter, and uh, uh, you have now some vital info on the uh, on how the devil does what he does. Really... You know, I thought about this this morning. In, in most churches and most surroundings and most settings, this would not be uh, considered probably a, a very good Mother's Day message. But when you think it through, uh, it really is. Uh, because I don't know of a greater influence on preachers or young men and young ladies in the early years of their life, of instilling the Word of God into somebody's life more than a mother. You know, men get caught up in the pride of things when it comes to the Bible. That's why all the Bible revisers now are, you find, are men. You ever notice that there wasn't any women that ever did that? You see, men get caught up in the pride of the Word of God, wanting to know it, wanting to be this, wanting to be that. A woman doesn't have that that problem. Now, I realize, and we're going to see it this morning, that, uh, that Eve was deceived, and we're going to talk about that, but she wasn't a mom yet. There's something about a mother where a father or a man just gets his intellect involved that it's the mom who prays through those kids' illnesses and prays through those kids through school and prays for the wayward sons or the wayward daughters to come back in a different way than a dad does. Men can be fooled with the Word of God, but moms who love the Lord and love the Word of God are not easily fooled when it comes to the Bible because they've seen it work. And they understand its principles, I think, better than a lot of men do. I mean, I look back in my life, and my mom and dad, you know, weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I look back in my life, you know, uh, when I was very young, and to this day, I can remember, you know, my mom uh, singing the hymns uh, sitting out on a porch, and uh, and 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 the things that they did and my dad did, but especially my mom. Moms have a tremendous influence on children's lives. I mean, when you watch the football games and the guy wants to say hi to somebody, it's not hi, dad, it's hi, mom. In the war, when a boy, guy gets wounded beyond belief and he's suffering, it's not his dad that he cries out for, it's his mother. Mothers have an incredible Incredible impact on people's lives, children's lives, and that's why in this particular chapter today, when I talk about the wisdom of the of the minister, once we get past Eve, as like I said, didn't have any kids, and we get into the church age where you have women who love the Lord of God and love the Lord, they're pretty special. And let's face it, I think that most of the great preachers that down through history Uh, are probably were great preachers because the great unsung heroes behind the scenes was a praying mom. And um, so we want to keep that in mind today as we come through this, and um, we'll see how this thing goes. Now, last time, we got a lot of good information on how the devil attacks the church, and this is what we're supposed to be in tune with today. You remember I took you back to Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, two greatest chapters in the, all the uh, Old Testament on, on, on how the devil operates. In the book of Job, where Job is attacked by the devil, much like the church is today. And with those two incredible chapters, we saw two great verses that I laid down as a foundation, two great concepts of how he works and how he operates. And we saw in Job chapter 41, 13, where the Bible says, who can discover the face of his garment? And I showed you the garment changes and how that all fits into history. Job 41, 12 talked about, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. In the foundational lesson that we had, a kind of an intro, I showed you what the parts were, the power were, and his comely proportion were. And we laid it all out. All this now has been defined for us, and... And laid out so that we can get into Chapter 11 a little better today. We can better understand what's what's happening. Uh, the absolute importance of this chapter, I I can't, I just can't uh, over uh, over overstate it. You got to remember that uh, remember attack on God's church will always be attack on God's people. We think about the devil attacking a church. We think he's going to blow the roof off or present a tornado. Well, he could do that, but the real attack on the church will always be attack on God's people because it's God's people that make up the church. So this is very vital stuff to you and for me. Now, I want to begin reading here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be kind of bouncing around here a little bit this morning, getting you some stuff to look at, but let's pick it up there, and we'll pray, and then we'll get into it here. He says there, Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent begot Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you today. Thank you, Father, for uh, the guests that you brought here, to, for the ch- children who did a great job, and for uh, all of the folks that uh, are part of this work and love this work and, and uh, are co laborers in ministry with me here as we have tried to do, for do what God has called us to do. We pray you'll take this time today and show us, educate us, give us insight, because we're so easily deceived and we're so easily caught up in the traps. And so many times we go through life and don't even know that the devil has knocked us off the, the path that, uh, that uh, we, we need to walk on. So help us today to learn this and apply it to our hearts. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this passage is loaded. You know, I've told you many, many times that I think, personally, the whole key to the whole Bible is just understanding one word, that's consistency. God teaches us by being consistent. The Bible lays itself out to us by being consistent. And uh, when you find something in the Bible, it usually, God doing something or the devil doing something or, or whatever, uh, it's always the consistency of it that shows you how it works. When you want to find the true church, and let's face it, we know that there's bad churches out there today, but if you want to find a true church, go to the first place that you find the church, in Acts, where the first called Christians at Antioch. And you know what? From that point, there's a consistency through the rest of the Bible and then down through history right to where you and I are at today. Everything runs by that way. When God does something, he always does it the same way. That's why the number seven is such a key number in the Bible, because God always does everything by seven. Why did he do that? Because he wants to show us his consistency. And, and uh, this chapter is absolutely loaded, because it begins to show us that with the devil also, the consistency is what you want to follow. Now, Paul, has, he's afraid for this church, He's afraid for this church and and I understand that. A good pastor is always afraid for his church. Bible says that a pastor's like a shepherd and the people in the sh- church are like sheep. And uh you know uh, the the analogies are endless how that sheep can be led astray. Sheep get get afraid of wolves or, or wild beasts come in. And the shepherd there with his shepherd dog and his crook, he just beats them to, away and he protects them. And, but, he, uh, but Paul is afraid for this church. And every good pastor ought to be afraid for his church. He ought to be afraid that, uh, you know, that, uh, and, and look to it, that uh, people don't get swallowed up in things and don't get caught up in stuff that, that hurts them. Because I told you last week, just as God has a plan for your life to do something with you, The devil has a plan for your life to take it out of your life. It's just that simple. It's not hard. And Paul is afraid for this church, and when he lays this chapter out uh, to illustrate his point to them about his fear of what the devil is going to try to do, he uses a great story out of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3 about the fall of Adam and Eve. And, man, what a story that is. Now, what Paul does here, again is a great thing, and it's a great key to us because Paul here and many other places throughout the Bible uses what we call typology or types of the Scripture, simply a story. Sometimes it's a story about a person. Sometimes it's a story about a circumstance or a situation in the Bible, and when you read it, it will be a study that, when you lay it out, will show you some New Testament principle. They're called typology in the Bible. Now, i got to be honest with you. Most preachers today, and certainly anybody who teaches the Bible in any higher academics, they don't believe in typology. But typology, along with consistency, is one of the great keys of the Bible, understanding what a type is. A type is a picture of something. And when you go through the Bible, you see all kinds of pictures of stories and people that illustrate certain things. I, I've always looked at the Bible as a picture book, I remember when my kids were very little, and, and uh, most of you parents do the same thing. When you want to uh, do a Bible study with them or read the Bible to them or have them read along with you, you, you don't get a you know a, a wide-margin Bible and, and, and try to lay it out. You get one of those Bibles for kids that's got the big print in it, and maybe you read two or three pages about Noah's Ark or Adam and Eve, and then you turn a page, and then they were smart enough to illustrate the story by putting a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah going into the ark with the animals, and the picture illustrates to the little kids what the story's about. Well, hey, come on. Don't ever get so smart and big in your britches that you think that the Bible doesn't deal with you and I and Jesus doesn't want us to be like children. One time the apostles had gotten to the point where they're really, you know, uppity-uppity and now they're really uh, got think they've made it and arrived. And uh, some little children wanted to come up to be with Jesus, and the apostles tried to keep them away. You know how little kids can be. They get dirty. They play in the dirt. I'm sure by this time, the apostles all had bought white robes. Probably had little name tags on them. And he didn't want those dirty little children coming up, putting their grimy little hands over their white robes. Say, what did Jesus do? Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. And that's one of the greatest statements in the bible because you know why you try to come to god with your education you try to come to god with all your knowledge you try to come to god with all all the things that you get from the world and from even the christian world and come to god you won't get anything when it comes to that bible and god the dumber you are this morning the better off you are you really are i mean i I'm, i'm not the smartest guy in the world i may know a few things about the bible but hey i when i went to school you know you kids I'm glad your kids aren't here today, but when I got D's and C's, man, that was a good day for me. I mean, I was in the third grade so long, the kids brought me the apple, they thought I was the teacher, see? So, but that's what it takes, because God wants you to come just like a little child. God wants you to be, no matter how old you are, He wants you to be so dumb that you'll just believe whatever He says. He wants you to be so dumb that he if God tells you that the moon is made of green cheese then that's exactly what it is. I remember one time we were going to Ohio Someplace years and years ago, and both of my kids were just little kids, and I was driving. It was an early morning, you know, and there wasn't much going on. I think it was a Sunday morning, to tell you the truth. Barb was asleep over there, you know, and and the kids were in the back, and we were they were bored. I was bored, and and so we were we were driving along there, you know, and and we were driving. I was in this lane, and a big old black Cadillac goes by, and it kind of you know how it goes by, and then it kind of paces with you for a minute, and then it just moves on. Well, the little kids looked over there and saw the guy obviously had a seat back, and he probably had a cup of coffee, and he had his power, he just back there, but he looked like he was asleep, and my kids said, Daddy, that guy's asleep, and now I'm bored, and it's nothing to do, and so I say, oh, he's got one of those new cars that has all the electronics in it that you can actually sleep while you drive, <laughs> and then I got into it. I said, you see, he had, he had those, remember, remember those little fender rods that come out, well, I forget what you call them. And I said, you see them? And they say, yeah, Daddy, I see them. And I says, well, those are pneumatic sensors. You see the white lines on the road? Well, it gauges through a computer how far you get. And I said, You see, though, he had something on the back. I don't know. I said, You see those little sensors on the back? That tells you when somebody's getting too close. He's got them on the front and too fast. And you can just get out there and you can just, and they're all excited. They're going crazy. Now they're making noise. Now they wake Barb up. She asks what the deal is. She, they, they tell him, I'm in trouble for lying to the kids now. You see how it goes? <laughs> That's the exact kind of relationship we should have with God. Whatever he tells me, I'm going to believe it. Except he's not going to fool with you like I fool with my kids. But you just got to be dumb enough to believe that what he says is true and come to him as a child. Now, that's why when he wrote the Bible, he put pictures in it. Typology. You read a story, you see the picture. The picture illustrates the principle. See how it works? Now, modern scholarship, you go to a Bible college someplace or go to most churches. They'd say that that's not true. But then they try to approach God through their academics, and that's why they don't know anything about the Bible. No, you want to come to God, you've got to come to God as a child. And that's why he wrote a simple little book. You'll see it when we get through here. Bible's filled with them. It's filled with them. I'll show you a great example. Take your Bible for a minute and turn back to Exodus chapter 12. Well, here, I'll show you one. Now we know what happens in Exodus chapter twelve. This is where Egypt comes out, uh, uh, Israel comes out of Egypt, and we know that they come out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. You know, they're told to take a blood, kill it, and put it on the door, and all of that. And uh, this is a great example. It's probably the best example I could ever use to show it's so easy, that shows uh, a type of our salvation. Now, I, I, for, when I first got right with God. Uh, and I went to church on a Sunday night. The First night, I I really got plugged back in. Dr. Peter S. Ruckman was preaching, and he preached a message I'll never forget. In fact, I still have it on cassette, and it was called "The Gospel According to Exodus." I, I sat there, you know, I just gotten where I wanted to be with God, and I wanted to learn the Bible. And I and I, I still say that that night was the catalyst that lit the fire in my life. I just sat there, and I my mouth had to be drop open. My eyes were as big as saucers. I could not believe he was getting everything he got out of that text, and he called it the gospel according to Exodus. You know what he did? He took an Old Testament story, and he developed it into an absolute New Testament principle about the day I got saved, and I had never seen that. And and from that point on, types were everything I wanted to learn and everything I wanted to get. And, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a thing where, first of all, the, the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb. You see, that's a picture of you and me being delivered out of the world because in the Bible, Egypt is a type of the world by the blood of the lamb. All the elements of Christ's death on the cross in this passage way, way before Christ ever was born. First of all, Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 says up to this point, The nation of Israel kept the Feast of Tabernacles for the beginning of the year, which is in September. At this point, Exodus 12, God says, I'm changing that. Now you're going to have a new beginning as a nation of Israel, and now it's going to be April at the Passover. You know what that's a picture of? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You see, there was a time in your life when everything went one way, and then the day you got saved, it all changed, didn't it? Now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. He came down through that pastor, a passage and he talked about that it was, a, it was a male lamb there in verse 5, just like Christ. Verse 5 says it was a male lamb without blemish, just like Christ. Verse 6 says it was killed by Israel, just like Christ. Whoa. Verse 6 says it was killed on the 14th day of the month. Just guess what day Christ was crucified on. 14th day of the month. See? Verse A nine says, no water, roast with fire. Christ on the cross said, I thirst. They took that blood and they put it on the door. They didn't just put a big circle on the door. They put one blood over here, one blood over there, one patch of blood over here. Why is that? Because whoever wrote that was a picture. And when the Holy Spirit of God did that, he was portraying Calvary. And when Christ died on the cross, he had one thief here, one thief here, and him at the top. See, he's numbered with the transgressors, but he's higher than they are. You know why? Because he's deity. And it was interesting that they put the blood on the door. That's the door of a home. Because when a, when a dad gets saved, the family's going to get saved. Just works that way. Just works that way. You see, that's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates in typology a picture of the New Testament events of salvation. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. I, I remember, remember Dr. Ruckman stopping and pausing on this. I preached this message, what I'm about to give you now, a hundred times over the years. You talk about the mind of the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says you need a lamb. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 calls it the lamb. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says it's your lamb. See that thing? The first thing you need is a lamb. lamb. But not just any lamb will do. You need the lamb. But you can know all about the lamb, but until you make it your lamb, you ain't going anywhere. See that thing? That's powerful, man. You know the only one Bible on the planet that has those three in it is a King James 1611 authorized version? Somebody didn't want you to know that. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. So in time through you coming to Thursday night Bible study through uh, Sunday morning and your own labors in the Word of God one-on-one when you come over and we go through the Bible together and all the things that we do, you begin to learn these. That's how I learned them. I didn't At night, I didn't go home by the next week have all the types down, but I'll tell you, by that time, I was wanting to hunt for them. And everything I did the rest of my life, I marked them in my Bible, correlated them in my Bible, and uh, that's what you got to do. I mean, the Bible's filled with them. You find stories of people in the Bible who are types of, of, of great pictures. You want to study salvation? Study Mephibosheth. You want to study salvation? Look at the book of Ruth. You say, I want to do a study of Christ. There's 21 men in the Old Testament that are types of Christ. I want to study the Antichrist. There's 18 types of men in the Old Testament that picture him. You say, well, I want to I type of the nation of Israel, Jacob. You know what God changed Jacob's name to? Israel, Job, Samson. You say, I want to study the Christian life in type in the Bible by a man that went through what I went through. Try Daniel. Try, God, try John in the New Testament. Try Abraham. Try David. Bible filled with them. Now, turn back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to show you a type that Paul's using. And this is where Paul uses the story about Eve and the devil and the fall of man in Genesis 3. And it's a type, and Paul, when he wants to tell the church, the New Testament church at Corinth, some 4,000 years later, he goes back to the Old Testament and uses a story to illustrate the New Testament principle. I want you to see that. I want you to start learning types. Now, look at... look at. Uh, well, I'll read it to you. You already turned back there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, But I fear the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. See that thing? Now, look at Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, that word subtle is a great word because the word subtle is, uh, it has a lot of different meanings. We use it today as someone who does something behind your back. Subtle about it. Does something behind your back but gives the appearance on the outside that uh, they're not doing anything. That's subtle. Subtle is a deceitfulness. Subtle is like treachery. And when somebody is subtle about something, they're telling you one thing but they're doing something else. They have an ulterior motive. And that's the devil here. He says, Now the serpent was more subtle. So you understand that word than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, uh, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, that your, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave it also unto her husband uh, with her, uh, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, that's a great story. Now, some things I want you to see here as we develop this and see how, why Paul is using this to the church at Corinth. What would would something that happened to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 remotely have to do with the devil's attack on the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? I'm going to show you. This is the type. Now, the first thing I, I want you to see about this incredible chapter is, if you don't have this already marked in your Bible, this is the first time the devil shows up in the Bible. First time. First time. This is the first time the devil shows up in the Bible, and this is the first time the devil says anything in the Bible. Now, in type, here's what you have. I'll make it easy for you, and then we'll come back and put it together. But here's what you got in type. Here's the picture. Adam, well, he's going to be a type of Christ for us. Eve is going to be a type of the church, you and me. And the serpent, well, he's going to play himself. He's going to be the devil. And Paul recognized this type. This is the thing that's incredible. Paul knew these types. How a college professor or a pastor could say it's not real when Paul used it. If it's not real and types aren't there, what is Paul doing? Paul saw and understood the validity of a story in the Old Testament typifying something. It's pretty incredible. And he recognized this type as he relates his fear to the church at Corinth. Now, I want you to see this. When the devil attacks uh, uh Eve here, who typifies the church, from our story, pretty obvious that Adam wasn't there. And yet when you see that aspect, that's a picture of the church age. Right now, Christ is not here. He went back and he's seated at the right hand of the God the Father. We saw it last time we were together in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 14, when the evil woman did her best work was when the good man was on a long journey. You go to Matthew 24, 43, Matthew 20, verse 11, God the Father is always likened, or Christ is always likened to a goodman, somebody on a journey, somebody here. He's gone right now. You and I are here just like Adam was not there. And you know what all Eve had? All Eve had is exactly what you and I have, what God had told her in their Bible studies together. All she had to go on was what? You and I have to go on the Word of God. Adam, the type of Christ in her life, was out someplace, whatever he was doing. My Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is up there in heaven, and I'm down here, and all I have right now is all that she had, and that's what God's given me in Bible study. It's an incredible type. And you want to remember this. Eve's not a direct creation, is she? When God made Adam, he made out of the dust of the ground, see, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But that wasn't Eve's case, was it? Eve came out of his side with one of his ribs, you know, Adam's rib, the woman's rib. That's how it come, see? Christ died on the cross. What finally killed him was that Roman soldier with that big old spear. He threw that spear in his side and went up into his side. That's what finally finished him off. And when the Bible says that when he died, water and blood came out of that side and John, and it says it testifies of something. You know what the picture is? When Christ, uh, when Adam, a deep sleep fell upon Adam, sleep's a type of death in the Bible, First Thessalonians chapter 4. A deep sleep fell upon Adam, and out of his side came the woman. On Christ, on the cross, a spear in his side, and he died, and out of his death, and that spear in his side... Came forth the church, the woman. See it? Not hard. It's gotta be stupid. And if anybody can gotta be able to know the Bible upside, one down other, it's me. Because it takes a master of stupidity. I feel like the guy sat on the plaza a couple of weeks ago. He was walking around with one of those t shirts on that says I was stupid, but he was by himself. <laughs> That's me. Adam and Eve are the only two people ever in history that when they were created, they were created with God's image and God's likeness. And I don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but the image is the spiritual side of it. The likeness is the physical side. And when they fell, they lost the image, spiritual image of Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. In fact, when Christ shows up 5,000 years later, he's called the second Adam. He's called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. Who couldn't put it together? Also, she's given to him, huh? She's given to Eve is given to Adam as a helpmeet. You notice it's not a mate. Animals have mates. Human beings don't have mates. They have meats. M e e t. You know why she was given to Adam? She was given to Adam because Adam was given a commission. His commission was to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. So he gave him a help meet, not a help mate. He gave Adam a help meet a woman who wasn't a direct creation to come out of man to help Adam meet the demands of the commission that God had given him. Ah, now take that. If, if Adam is a type of Christ, or Christ is, a, and, and, and my Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who saved me, then, and he's my husband and I'm his bride, then there it is, my job. Today, your job as a Christian, if you're saved, is to be a help meet to your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave the church a commission, just like he gave Adam a commission. And as Eve was there to help Adam, you and I as the bride of Christ are there to help Christ fulfill that commission. How you doing with that? See how the type it works? He was given a commission, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. I'm given a commission, this church is given a commission, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth in a spiritual sense. Winning people to Christ. Restoring the fallen image of Adam. See how it works? Hey, the Bible's a fun book. It's just like any picture book, if you approach it that way. But, oh, no, no, we got to be really scholarly about it, you know, in the Bible. I mean, you can't laugh, you can't smile. I've known churches where they think if you laugh in church, it's a sin. Now, Paul's fear for this church, the church at Corinth, is that the devil will corrupt the church from the simplicity That is in Christ. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Now, let's look at that a moment. I want you to understand the simplicity of Christ. In this particular case, God's simplicity for Adam and Eve was a garden. Perfect weather, no work, no taxes, no war, no government, no laws, no hospitals, no snow, no floods, no death, no funeral homes. No natural disasters, no bugs, no mosquitoes, no funerals, no caskets. I mean, perfect. Just a simple, plain life where the creation could fellowship with the creator. But all the devil changed all of that, didn't he? You see, the devil will always take the most simple things that represent God and form them into complexity. You never want to forget that. You never want to forget that. The devil changed all of that, didn't he? He took the simplicity that was in Christ and turned it into the complexity of man. Now we have war. Now we have to go to work. Now we have death. Now we just don't have homicide, but we got genocide and suicide. Now we got bad weather. We got taxes. We got cancer. We got hospital. We got funeral homes. We got divorces. We got hurricanes. We got hemocains. We got tornadoes. We got, and, and, and yet now we all live in a city. Now, I'm not against the city, but I want to tell you this. You do know that the first city in the Bible was started by a murderer, one of the devil's boys. And if there's anything, how many times have you heard it? I got to get out of the city, out of this rat race and just get back to the country. Why? Because in the country, much more simple. I mean, you don't have the traffic you've got to deal with. You don't have to have this you've got to deal with. I mean, you don't have bosses or people. You get up in the morning, milk the cows, or they don't do what's right, slap them with the bucket. I mean, it's easy, see? <laughs> it's much more simple, much more simple. You live in a city. Most people can't think the thing through. You live in a city, but you still have to go to the farm to eat. There isn't one thing we consume that doesn't come off of a farm. And if you don't go to the farmer's market downtown, then you go to John's Apple Market, Constantino's, you go someplace where they have the the market stuff that comes from a farm. You know why you do that? Because you can't eat asphalt. It has to go back. Everything in life goes back to God's simple plan, no matter how complicated we try to make it. Just the way it is. Now the devil, and want to mark him now, will always be connected to making the simple things of God and making them complex. Let's see if it's true. Let's have some fun for a moment here. Let's take salvation. Is there anything that is more simple than God's simple plan of salvation? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." How much simpler does it get than that? Oh. But when man gets it, when the devil gets into it, now it's you got to be baptized to be saved. You know, there's some churches that baptize you for salvation that baptize you seven times backward, three times forward. That's complicated. <laughs> They probably have to get, they do a lot of baptism. They probably have to get a new pastor every four or five years because his back goes out. <coughs> but now, no, no, salvation's not simple anymore. Now you've got to be baptized. You realize that the five major religions that are around the world today that teach you got to be baptized to go to heaven, they teach that you can only get salvation through their church and blood of Christ is applied to your sins through their water system and their baptismal? That's complicated. I stood there one time looking at the Church of Christ baptistry, and I said, "What, are you, what, are you, what are you, I'm waiting for the blood to come out. <laughs> Never came out. Now you've got to work your way to heaven. Well, that's complicated. Now you've got to have the second blessing. Somebody asked me one time if I got the second blessing. I said, I ain't got past the first one yet. Yeah. Now you've got to be predestinated. You know, Jesus loves me. Sorry about you. You're not one of the chosen few. You know how it works? That's complicated. You know what a Calvinist really teaches? If you have a little baby that dies, that Calvinist will tell you that 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 little baby has a 50-50 chance of going to hell. You know why? Because that baby, he doesn't know that baby was predestinated to go to heaven or go to hell and they believe that half of us are and half of us aren't, or I'm not sure what the ratio is. But anyway, could you imagine preaching a funeral for a little baby? The insurance you got is the fact that that Bible says that baby is in heaven. Could you imagine a pastor getting up and saying to that family, I don't know which way that little baby went today. Why? Well, they would kill the pastor, I would. say th- I would. <laughs> That's complicated, man. Now we say, well, you're saved, but you can lose it. That's complicated. What do you lose it for? Well, you lose it if you murder somebody. Well, the Bible says if you hate somebody in your heart, you murder them. That's complicated. Now you've got to come up with a whole system. Well, you don't lose it for little sin, but you lose it for big sin. Let me tell you something. If you can lose your salvation and you go 55 into 35, you're going to hell. That's one good thing about being saved and knowing eternal security. You can go as fast as you want. (laughs) (laughs) It's complicated. Man, God's simple plan of salvation was so simple. But no, 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 no. Man takes it and he complicates it. What God gave us that was so simple, the devil and man make so complicated. I see it with dealing with people with issues in their life. We've talked about it in the people ministry. We've talked about how that if a, an unsaved man has problems, the basic fundamental reason he has problems is because God wants him to be saved. And the only happiness and completeness he can have in life is to be saved. So when he rejects Christ's salvation, he tries to find happiness in everything the world has. And, hey, most of us have been there. Is there any complete happiness in the world? Somebody said, "I'd be happy if I won a million dollars in a lottery." No, you wouldn't, because tomorrow you'd want another million. Right. Don't you realize that when you win a lottery of a hundred million dollars, it just moves things up? Now what you pay ten dollars for, and don't think about it, you'll spend a thousand dollars for, and don't think about it. Now you got to have a boat, a car, a train, a this, a plane, and all these stuff. You got to get it. It moves you up, and you just want more. There's no satisfaction in the world, but they think it is. A saved person has problems in his life. One simple fact, God saved you to serve him. And if you don't serve him, I got news for you. You're going to be the most miserable person you ever saw in your life. You're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's not hard. It's simple. Oh, no, but man and the devil. No, no, no. We got problems, so we got to have psychology. We got to have psychiatry. We got to have mental illness. We got to have mental breakdown, nervous breakdown. We got to have Christian psychologists, Christian therapists. We got to have depression, manic depression. We got to have schizophrenia. We got to have bipolar disorder. I like psychoceramics. That's what I specialize in, crackpots. <laughs> the mark of the devil's handiwork will always be taking the simple things of the Bible and making them complicated. You see it in the Bible. I wrote a book back there called How to Study the Bible, sold well under a million copies. (laughs) That book, there's no book on this planet that shows you how easy that Bible is and how it's all built around the words. Bible is easier than book in the world to learn. You say, why is it so hard for me? Because it's the only book in the world that you have to do it God's way. Not your way. See, you can have your way in everything you want in life, but when it comes to that book, it's his way. His way or no way. Ninety-eight percent of the words in that Bible are one-syllable and two-syllable words. Flesh Kincaid was a corporation that did a lot of work for uh, developing a a grade-level formula for reading and uh, for public schools. And uh, somebody took their formula one time and applied it to all the translations of the Bible. They said that the NIV was a, written on an 8th grade level. The good news for modern man, sometimes called bad news for modern man, was written on a 7th grade level. The ASV was written on a 6th grade level. And a King James 6th and Evan authorized version was written on a 4th grade level. Fourth grade, A 4th grader could get it. William Tyndale, 1495, one of the great early translators that translated the Bible in English for a common people. He took a lot of heat for it. He took a lot of heat for it. And uh, all the scholarly world, they didn't want the common man to have a Bible. The devil didn't want the common man to have a Bible because the most powerful thing in this universe is a common man with a common Bible. The scholars wanted to keep the Bible for themselves, and they didn't appreciate Tyndale, who had a burning desire to translate the Bible into English 200 years before the King James Bible came out, but off the same text and give it to the common man. He was being hauled in by the scholarly brethren for a meeting one day, and they were just beating him up one side and down the other. He held firm to his convictions, and he looked out the window, saw a plowboy plowing the field with a mule across the road. He turned around to the scholarly brethren and he said, "Gentlemen, someday that plowboy will know more of the Bible than all the scholars in England," and he was right. I'm that plowboy. That's me. That's me. When it comes down to that Bible, you want to dance with me on it, put a quarter in a jukebox and let's do it. Paul says the simplicity that's in Christ. That's my always been my beef with Bible colleges, Bible seminaries. I think God's program is a New Testament local church. I think where young men and young ladies need to be trained in the Bible New Testament local church. I don't know what pastors do all day long, but if they do anything else than taking people, investing their life in what they've learned and putting them into them in the Word of God, you're doing the wrong thing. I, I've never understood sending them off, shipping them off to Bible college. You go there and you learn a system of terms that have nothing to do with the Bible. On Thursday night, somebody wants to say, Bob, I got a question about angels in the Bible. Now, if I was a Bible scholar, I'd say, no, that's angelology. Well, I want to talk about man. No, 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 that's anthropology. Well, I want to talk about salvation. No, 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 that's soteriology. Well, I want to talk about church. No, 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 that's eschatology. No, I want to talk about Christ. No, 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 that's Christology. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. No, that's pneumonology. I want to talk about the Bible. No, 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 that's apologetics. Well, I want to talk about teaching the Bible. No, no, that's exegesis. No, I want to talk about the personal application. No, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, heronetity or ology. Well, I want to talk about how to exposit the Bible. No, that's hermeneutics or most commonly hemorrhoid nutics, but it's what it is. <laughs> you know what you do? You spend eight years of your life and a couple hundred thousand dollars to learn to talk like nobody in the Bible ever talked. Amen. Nobody. You think when they come up to Jesus... He used angiology, humanology and you know, all the things. no he talked to them as they were children. That's the problem. Bible colleges, 98 percent of them I'll leave two percent for some good ones out there someplace. never found one, but there probably are. I mean even a broken quax right twice a day, you got to find them someplace. but they get a system of terms not found in the Bible anyway. Anywhere, They want to take the place of the Holy Spirit of God in teaching from you and take from you the simplicity of the Word of God in Christ and replace it with something that's complex. Now, that's the devil at work. That's the devil at work through saved, born-again, blood-washed Christians who have lost the vision of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and have lost the simplicity of Christ. Now, I want to show the attack here. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. I don't know where you're at, but go back to Genesis 3. Now, here's the attack that Paul is so worried about. And as I said, the Bible is consistent. And the first time the devil shows up in the Bible, he's setting the standard for his attack on the church. And Paul knows this, he understands this. And this is why, four or 5,000 years later, he's running back to here to make a point to the church in the New Testament. It's a type. Now, look at Genesis 3 1. Look what the devil says. It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said. Now, that's an incredible statement. The first words out of his mouth was something that God said. You know, if you're an atheist, that really makes you look like an idiot. I'm going to give you my T-shirt. I mean, an atheist says, I don't believe in God. The devil believes in God. How foolish that makes you look. If I was an atheist, I wouldn't tell anybody. How ridiculously it makes you. A, the devil knows there's a God in the first words out of his mouth, when he wanted to corrupt man and corrupt everything in God's plan and take the simplicity and make it complex and he wanted to follow up. He didn't ask Eve out on a date. He didn't want to get her drugs. He didn't want to get her booze. He didn't want to get her all of those things. He simply came and said, yea, hath God said. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's what he said. Now look at that. Look at 2.16. That's not what God said. God said in 2.16, and The Lord God commanded a man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now there it is. There's the first attack of the devil, and that's going to run consistent through all history and all the Bible, and that's why Paul used it back then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll use it today. The first attack of the devil in the Bible on a type of Christ is simply Yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said. See that thing? And it's not a statement. It's a question mark. He didn't say, yea, hath God said. He said, yea, hath God said. He laid the premise in her life that God didn't know for sure what he was saying. He put it in a form of a question, not a statement, and then he altered and revised and changed what God said. Now watch this. Human nature at its finest. When he requoted it, he didn't quote the whole verse and he took out the word freely. Right there starts the fact that your salvation is not free. Right there in Genesis 3, 1 starts the beginning of the teaching that's going to formulate down the line that it's not free from God. It's not God's free salvation. When he took the word freely out, now he implies that you got to do something to get it. And Once the devil makes the first move, watch old Evie baby jump into this thing. Here's our first Bible reviser in history. And the woman said, chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now there it is. The devil subtracted from the word of God and put a question mark on it. And old Evie shows up and she adds to the word of God. He said absolutely nothing about touching it. And if that wasn't all, he told her specifically what tree it was. Look what she says. What tree was it? She says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. What tree is that, Eve? God was specific and told you which tree that was. See, here's the start of the devil and man taking the simple things and trying to make it complex. And boy, did it get complex from here. And you know what, how it ends. It ends in complexity. It ends in the first deviation from what God said in the simplest form in the Scriptures led to the fall of man and the complexity of life on planet Earth and to, for an eternity, billions of people stepping out without God all because now we believe that God didn't know what he was talking about. And the devil's never changed his tactics. And today when the devil wants to destroy the, uh, the, the, the commission that God has given to the church, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth in a spiritual sense, the great commission, preach the gospel to all nations, he does the exact same thing. He comes to you and pretends to be spiritual and says like we saw in Job 41, with soft words, as an angel of light. And today across this world, pastors are standing in a pulpit and saying, yea, hath God said, thousand pulpits. Bible colleges across this world, yea, hath God said. And in every Bible study you'll find throughout the week, yea, hath God said. In every case, after they say that, you know what they do? They just change what he said. They say, well, that's not a very good reading. Well, you know, a better translation of that should be this. There's places where they'll tell you in your Bible in Mark, in Mark chapter 16, there's people that will tell you that the last 12 verses shouldn't even be in there. There's places in 1 John chapter 5 where the greatest, greatest verse on the Trinity is, and everybody takes it out. You know why? Because they want to revise what God said. Hey, you know what? I'm just dumb enough to believe that that's what he gave me, that's what it is, and that's what I'm staying with. Guy came to me one time and he says, "Oh, you're Bible Alexander, aren't you?" And I said, "I don't know. Do I owe you any money?" <laughs> I said, "Yes, I am." <clears throat> he says, "Well, you believe the King James Bible without error?" And I said, "That's correct." He says, "I believe it has errors." I said, "Okay." I said, "How'd you get those errors? How'd you find them?" He says, "Well, he says, uh, he, I said, give me one error that God showed you was in that Bible. Just one." I'll show you a hundred thousand things God showed me about the Bible. Show me one error that the Holy Spirit of God, and you found it was wrong in that Bible. Everything he had, some man told him. You idiot. I'm going to give you my t shirt. I have to buy a lot of t shirts. (laughs) They say, Yea, hath God said, then simply revise what God says and then tell you something that he never said. I told you this Thursday night we got into this, and I told you it was a great precursor to getting into, uh, get into this. And, uh, but the difference between a King James Bible and NIV is 60,000 changes between the two, 60,000 places where some man didn't think God knew what he was talking about and changed it. There's the a tack today. Somebody said, well, I got a new King James Bible. That's 40,000 changes. Now 60,000 places that somebody thought God didn't know what he was talking about and either changed it or took it out completely. You want a list of them? See John Bousquet. He puts them out all the time. Our famous French evangelist. <laughs> and better look out. Pam qualified yesterday for concealed carry permit. Did good, did good. Shot three bystanders and an instructor. Did good. <clears throat> no, she got a hell on a target. Did great. Said she, she scored right up there with the police officers. Oh boy. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> so that's why we're who we are. I make no apologies for it. That's why we send our people off to Bible college. I believe the New Testament local church is a job. I, me, myself, one on one teaches you the Bible. That's why we take the position that William Tyndale took in 1495. That's where we're at. And, uh, you know, all of you can have and, and we'll know the Bible as good as any scholar in this country if you just do what the Bible tells you to do. That's why we teach the warnings in the Bible in Second Corinthians chapter 11. And yeah, that's why I'll make a big deal about it. I'll tell you why, because that book is all we got. And if the devil ever gets this book out of your hand or out of the hand of this church, we're done. We're finished bring in the big screens, bring in the smoke, bring in the lights, bring in the stages. That's where we'll be at. A while back, I preached to a message a couple of years ago about be not deceived, be not disarmed, and be not discouraged. And that's what the devil will do. He'll deceive you first, and then he'll disarm you, and then you talk about what Christianity is today. It's a discouragement. I've never seen Christians so discouraged today when they're living in the greatest time in probably the history of the world. And the devil will do it two ways, folks. He always will. The first thing he'll do is he'll take the Word of God out of your heart first. You see, when you stop loving the book, then you'll leave the book. When it ceased, the book ceases to be the number one thing in your life, then something else becomes number one and the book becomes number two, and that's the way it works. And once he takes it out of your heart, it's only a matter of time he'll take it out of your hand. That's the way it works. You know, the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, talks about church history. And it shows you that there's seven periods of church history. And it shows you that what happened in Genesis went all the way through the Bible, went all the way through the New Testament, and it's alive through church history. It's alive today. The first church we have is the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. And that church is the first church. It lines up to the uh, Paul in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 20, the church at Ephesus. And the word Ephesus means fully purposed. Here was the church that had everything that it needed, the apostles, some of them, had just died off. Uh, some of them are still around. They're, they're the, the, the ones that they won to Christ are still around. The vision of Christ and the knowledge of Christ and who he was is firmly in everybody's mind. Everybody knows what the New Testament is now. They got it. The Old Testament, they got it. If there was ever a church that was fully purposed to do the work of God, it was this one. But you know what he says in Revelation 2:4? He says about this great church that was fully purposed. He says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You know what the first love was they left? The Word of God. All the way back there. Devil never misses it. You find in this early church with good, godly, saved men who loved the Lord and many of them died in the arena. The first deviation from what the Word of God said. Oh yeah, if you know anything about church history. The first deviation from the Bible starts right here and then it carries on. The devil all the way through. We have in church history we call the Church fathers, not in a spiritual sense, but fathers in the sense that they were leaders in the church. They fall into three categories. You have what they call the apostolic church fathers that uh, were around right after the apostles. You have the Nicene church fathers, which bring you up around 300. And then you have the what they call the post nicene fathers, which bring you up after the council of Niacinia. But it's the early church fathers, the apostolic ones, where you see it happening. You have a guy by the name of Patheus, And he's a good man, but you know what? He starts the idea and teaching in his messages that Christ was born in a cave. And you know, in your Himmler right there on page eighty-eight about Christ's birth, somehow, some way, some shape, some form, there's a there's a song, song in there about the birth of Christ in a cave. He wasn't born in a cave; he was born in a stable. See, how do you know that? Because my mother all the time for the last. 40 years of my life before I came to Kansas City and everything that I've ever done and everything I've ever heard when somebody leaves the door open they always say the same thing close the door were you born in a barn where do you think that saying comes from you was born in a stable my mom never said close the door were you born in a cave <laughs> told you mother's really are smart <laughs> you have Clement of Rome and he lives around 30 A.D. And he lives on up through there. Maybe the Clement talked about in the Bible. You don't know for sure. But you know what he does later on in life? He starts to embrace the idea of the Nicolaitans that there ought to be a priest class over the common people. You take Irenaeus, one twenty, another good man, same man. You know what he says in one of his letters that he writes? He says that water makes you clean. Now that boy didn't believe in baptism regeneration any more than I do. But he got creative. He got out of the Bible. And he said something that 2,000 years later, when somebody wants to prove that baptism saves you, guess where they go? To his writings. You have Ignatius, 50 A.D. Save man. Save man. Love the Lord. But he gets creative. And when one of his letters that he writes, he gets out of the Koine Greek and he gets into the classical Greek. And when he wants to talk about the universal concept of the church, he borrows a word from the Greek pagan philosophers and it's the word catholic and he called the church Catholic. He had no mention at all in any reference that he ever think of the Catholic church as we do. He was using it in a term that was a classical Greek of the day, which he never should have done. He should have stuck with the Bible. But 2,000 years later, when somebody wants to prove the Catholic church and the own church, they'll go right back to his writings. See, he believed it. Polycarp. Polycarp was burned at the stake. And before he died, he says, eighty and some years have I when he asked him to betray him and turn Christ away, he said, eighty some years I have followed him, I'll not, not follow him today. And he burned him at the stake. Great man, saved man. But in one of his writings, you know what he said? He called the church the mother of us all. There ain't the Bible anywhere. You see, if you don't stick with the Bible and you start making things up, you see where it ends. Nobody wants to prove the concept of the Roman Catholic Church being the mother of the church. They go right back to Polycarp. He had no Basilides 138. Well, at this point, he gets to the point where he says it was Peter that died on the cross, not Christ. That's good. Justin the Martyr 100. He says that Christ was just a philosopher. See. And I could go on and on and on. The first deviation from what God said didn't start with the unsaved crowd. It started with the saved crowd. It started with saved men who got out of the Bible, who started using terms and getting phrases and getting out of the clear doctrine of the Word of God, and then it went right to the the whole concept of revising what God said. They fell for it. The devil laid it out for them. They fell for it. They bought, and they brought a disaster in New Testament Christianity. And that's the line of theology that continues right down to today. It's the line of theology that produced the line of the Bibles that changes the word of God that, that, uh, that the devil's attack that killed Christianity today. You know, we talk about, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, our country's got a lot of issues. Our country's about as shot as it could ever be. Even the unshaved world now looks at America and you hear it on the news all the time. They say that America has entered into the post-Christian era. I believe that. I believe that. And I know, I hear the talk, Christian talk show guys and I hear all this and all the books that come out and all that stuff, but I want to tell you something. The problem in this country is not Barack Obama, though I wouldn't give you two cents for it. The problem in this country is not Hillary Clinton. I wouldn't give you a penny for her. The problem in this country is not the Supreme Supreme Court. I can't give you anything for them because I'm out of money. It's not the Democrats. It's not the liberals. It's not not even the Republicans. And it's not even the Muslims. No, no. The problem today is three things. It's preachers, Christians, and Christianity. It's people who get into that pulpit every Sunday, won't preach the Bible, won't preach the paint off the wall, won't preach the hell out of people, and won't do what needs to be done. Billy Sunday in the 1920s, one man single-handedly by preaching the hell out of every place he went and the paint off the wall, one man turned the whole country from bruise and brought in prohibition. One guy with that book. What could 100,000 men standing in pulpits across this country, laying the word of God out, putting it out, Do. Back in the 1800s and the 1900s, it was where the revivals were across this country. Gypsy Smith, Mordecai Ham, Kansas City. Who remembers? Saw back in the early 1900s one of the greatest revivals in this city. by Gypsy Smith. We watched the Grand old Opry. We watch all the little people on there and all the thing, and it's all fun. And nobody understands it down in Ryman Auditorium. Nobody knows that in May the 10th, 1885, Sam Jones preached in that city and it was such a revival and one of the biggest gamblers and one of the biggest crooks in that city got saved and he wanted to have a place for Gypsy Smith to preach the Word of God, and his name was Thomas Ryman, and he built that tabernacle called the Union Gospel Tabernacle, which now is called Ryman Auditorium, but it was a place back then where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men and women heard the gospel. Who knows that today? Now it's little Jimmy Dickens. Charlie Pride. Now it's all this stuff, and we've lost the whole concept At all across, the devil has done his attack. I am not responsible for Ryman Auditorium. I'm not responsible for all the other churches. I'm not responsible for all those things. But I am responsible for what I have right here. So Paul's Paul's fear was real. And my fear is real. Fear that the church of Jesus Christ would be beguiled. And we're going to talk about the word beguiled next week beguiled from the simplicity that is in Christ and in time corrupted and destroyed by the complexity. And that's exactly what happened. The course of history is a lesson that everyone had to learn for the history of the world. Every country that once, at one time, had the Word of God has lost it and has been lost to the ashes and the dust of history. England. 1600 and 1900, she was the greatest nation on this planet. There were more souls won through her missionaries and the Bible societies and the great preachers during that time than probably any other time that we know of. Where is she at today? She got educated and dumped the book in 1900. Czechoslovakia doesn't even exist anymore. In 1400, everybody in that country was a saved, born-again believer by one man John Hush. today the country doesn't even exist anymore. Germany, boy, how we got from Martin Luther to Adolf Hitler, how we got from Martin Luther to Kaiser Wilhelm, how we got from one place to the other is one of the greatest studies that we have no time today to lay out, but it all goes back to Martin Luther translating this Bible into the German people, Martin Luther's translation and the revival God brought that no longer today. Today you go to Germany, there's no churches, there's no morals, there's no nothing. Holland. The most corrupt city, well, I shouldn't say that. They're all all ride for each other. But Amsterdam is probably one of the most pagan, uh, godless cities on the planet, running up the New Orleans and Rio de Janeiro down there. But it's a mess. It's a mess. And yet there was one time when the, when the Dutch Baptist under uh, William of Orange was one of the greatest Bible-believing places that you could ever find. Incredible, but it's all gone. Africa. Boy, when the British went into Africa, when I went to Africa back in the 80s, they still believed the Bible. They loved the Bible. They loved the Word of God. They spoke English because they were trained in English by British missionaries years ago. It was incredible what God had done. Now it's all Muslim, and it's gone. Korea is the same way, and yet the United States is the same way. The old boys used to tell me something when I was younger. Of course, I accepted what they told me because I trusted them, but I never fully understood what they told me till now some 45 years later. And I see it now because a lot of water under the bridge and I had a chance to look at a lot of things and go through a lot of things. But they used to say that in history, no nation that ever had the word of God after getting rid of the Word of God. Not one nation in history ever survived 200 years. And at the time, I didn't know a lot. I marked it in my Bible. But boy, 45 years later, with being through church history and world history now, what, 100 times and coming through that thing and laying that out and standing my life going through it, boy, they had it on the money. I can strongly tell you today that no nation that had the Word of God that rejected the Word of God ever survived 200 years. And America rejected the word of god in 1881 and from that point there to where we're at now look where we're at and for you poor fear till jesus comes back look where we're going who would have thought 20 years ago same-sex marriages would be so accepted as the way they are the states now are accepting them who would have thought 30 years ago 20 years ago there's somebody coming out of the closet and saying i'm gay and all the world applauds It won't be long that they will applaud you and me for coming out of the closet and saying, I'm straight. (laughs) This is Paul's concern. And as we move into these last days, however long we have before the Lord comes back, we have got to hold the line. We've got to continue to let God do what he does here and bringing people in and bringing people out and doing all that he does to bake the cream of the crop and build you in that book for what we've got to do in these last days. I give you the warning, as Paul gave the warning to the church of Corinth, that I've had the warning from my fathers and the Lord many, many years, for many, many times, that that's exactly what he does. he will take it out of your heart first, and then you'll take it out of your hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you <coughs> praise you today for the Lord